Hello, 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 and welcome to the very first episode of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup, and I'm so excited that you're listening. This podcast has been a long time in the making, and you're finally here. And I finally get to share about one of my favorite subjects. First, a little background about me. I'm a psychologist at a forensic psychiatric hospital, and I've long had a fascination with the treatment of severe mental illness and the history of the hospitals themselves. This podcast will begin by exploring the history, the treatments and mistreatments, legends and lore of Oregon State Hospital in Salem, Oregon. This is especially fitting for me because of my personal connection to Oregon State Hospital. I was born right across the street in a building that's no longer there, And I grew up driving past it and wondering about the people who lived there. It was this large, ominous building that somehow seemed shrouded in mystery. Many years later, after what we now refer to as the old hospital was torn down and rebuilt, I spent a year of my training to become a psychologist at the hospital. So in a strange way, it feels very familiar, making it the perfect segue into this podcast. So come on in, make yourself comfortable, as we go behind the walls of Oregon State Hospital. In today's episode, we're going to learn about the history of Oregon State Hospital itself, what preceded it, its construction and architecture, and the evolution of treatment. Let me also offer a trigger warning for this particular episode, as it will contain mention of intimate partner violence and some truly horrifying and inhumane methods of treatment. Long before the hospital was constructed, Before Oregon even became a state, there was the precedent-setting case of Charity Lamb. Charity was a pioneer woman. She left her home in Missouri and dared to cross on the Oregon Trail with her husband Nathaniel and three children, giving birth to a son along the way. After settling in Oregon, she gave birth to two more children for a total of six, a daughter and five sons. But Charity's husband was said to struggle with alcohol abuse and made violent threats and assaults on Charity as her children would later testify. He was said to have beaten her with a hammer, attempted to poison her, threatened to kill her, abandon the family, and moved to California. After years of enduring physical abuse and threats of taking her children away from her, on May 13, 1854, while he was sitting down to eat, Charity raised an ax and struck it twice on his head. Her husband, Nathaniel Lamb, died of his injuries a week later. Charity was later charged with temporary insanity at the moment of her husband's killing. In September 1854, she was convicted of second-degree murder by an all-male jury. It had to be, really, because, according to them, had she been acquitted, they could have simply made the argument that women everywhere who were unhappy in their marriages could kill their husbands without recourse. Charity became the first convicted female murderer in the territory of Oregon. She spent the next two years in jail before being transferred to Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, where she was the only woman inmate and was forced to do hard labor. In 1862, the Oregon State Insane and Idiotic Asylum opened in Portland. Now, quickly a word about this terminology. Around the turn of the century, the terms idiot, imbecile, and moron were not intended to be pejorative, but rather diagnostic. They all fell under the psychiatric umbrella term feeble-minded, which today we might describe as having an intellectual disability. It's what we used to call mental retardation. The term moron indicated someone with a mental age of approximately 8 to 12 years. 
The term imbecile indicated someone with a mental age of three to seven years, and the term idiot indicated someone with a mental age of two years or under. The Oregon State Insane and Idiotic Asylum, therefore, was a catch-all institution for people who were unable to care for themselves. This institution was also often called the Hawthorne Asylum, and that's how you'll hear me refer to it. So Charity was transferred to the Hawthorne Asylum on December 2nd, 1862, now eight years after the murder of her husband. The transfer was not likely because of the state of Charity's mental health, although some certainly argued that a woman killing the father of her children must be crazy, but because it provided less scrutiny on the prison itself. Now, Oregon no longer had a woman inmate. Life at Oregon State Insane and Idiotic Asylum opened up new possibilities for Charity. By the following year, 1863, her children were able to visit her regularly. She was not encumbered by hard labor like she was at the penitentiary. In 1863, Charity was one of 34 patients, of which five were women. The asylum's resident physician, Dr. James C. Hawthorne, had visited asylums in multiple states along the East Coast, looking for the best practices psychiatry had to offer. According to the book Inside Oregon State Hospital by Diane L. Gores Gardner, when Dr. Hawthorne returned to Oregon, he based his treatments on the concept of moral management, often referred to as moral therapy. It was founded on the philosophy that it was necessary to treat patients with kindness, consistent expectations, and exposure to a natural rural setting. Moral management believed that it was important to entertain the mind with books, music, and conversation, as well as exercise, the body with productive work and healthful pursuits. Patients were encouraged to enjoy swings, ball playing, and other games. The asylum's wards were clean, well-ventilated, and kept in excellent repair. Healthy food, air, and water helped patients physically, while pleasant activities and kind treatment helped them mentally. Physical activities included walking, gardening, sewing, and outdoor games. Reading, writing, and conversation were prescribed mental activities. All was done in a regular and consistent manner, so patients knew exactly what was expected of them. Laxatives in the form of Epsom salts, calomel, and cochineal seemed to relax manic patients. Physical restraints were used only as a last resort. Unlike many women of her social status in the 19th century, Charity was able to read and write. Undoubtedly, she was able to put her education to use while at the asylum, thanks to the moral therapy encouraged by Dr. Hawthorne. This must have been a stark contrast to harsh pioneer life and raising six children. The only surviving description of charity at the asylum comes from a report of facility inspectors in 1865. Quote, she sat knitting as the visiting party went through the hall, face imper imperturbably fixed in half-smiling contentment, apparently as satisfied with her lot as the happiest of sane people with theirs, end quote. There are no reports of charity engaging in violence or requiring the use of restraints while at the asylum. Charity Lamb died in September 1879 of apoplexy, likely a stroke or internal hemorrhage. She was 58 years old and had spent 17 years at the asylum, 25 years after the murder of her husband. Although her name is not listed in the records, Charity was most likely buried in the Lone Fir Cemetery in Portland, where other indigent patients were routinely interred. Not everyone admitted to the hospital had been convicted of a crime as Charity had been. 
By September 1874, the asylum housed 195 patients, 140 men, and 55 women, and their reasons for admission varied. 100 were admitted for chronic mania, 39 for acute mania, 24 for epilepsy, 34 for dementia, 2 for monomania, which I had to look up, that's the obsession or fixation on one thing, 2 for melancholy, and 14 for idiocy. Following Charity's death in 1880, 285 patients resided at the Oregon State Insane and Idiotic Asylum, 204 men and 81 women. The youngest was a nine-year-old girl, and the oldest was an 87-year-old woman. Complaints had arisen in the previous years about the increasing cost of not only housing the patients, but also transporting patients to and from the asylum. The housing costs had risen from about 58000 per year in 1874, so about $6 per patient per week, to over 70000 per year in 1877. There was a push around that time to transition to a state-owned facility, and by 1880, a legislature authorized building a state asylum in Salem, located on 107 acres close to the penitentiary. Construction of the new Oregon State Insane Asylum began in 1881 and was designed by W.F. Boothby in the popular Kirkbride style. The Kirkbride plan, as it was known, was developed and designed by psychiatrist Thomas Story Kirkbride around the mid-19th century. It was based in the concept of moral therapy and the belief that the environment itself could have a curative effect on patients. Access to natural light, good air circulation, and comfortably furnished rooms were at the core of the Kirkbride plan philosophy. It was further recommended that the insane asylums house no more than 250 patients at a time. And I want to highlight that point. 250 patients at a time. We'll come back to that. Each large stately building had a central structure that contained the hospital's administration, kitchens, public reception areas, and superintendent's apartments. Outward from the central structure were four wings on both sides that were staggered in a step-like bat wing pattern. This was intended to ensure that each wing received adequate sunlight and privacy. Each wing was designed to hold approximately 30 patients and included a parlor, bathroom, clothes room, infirmary, speaking tube for communicating with other areas, and a dumb waiter. Rooms were spacious, with 12-foot-high ceilings designed for one patient. The most dangerous and volatile patients were housed in the wings farthest from the central structure. At least 100 acres of land in order to accommodate outdoor exercise and provide fertile, spacious landscapes. In all, 73 Kirkbride Plan hospitals were constructed in the U.S. and Canada between 1845 and 1910. W.F. Boothby designed the Oregon State Insane Asylum and built upon the Kirkbride Plan. As Gores Gardner points out, quote, It was brick with a gracious entrance, long hallways and corridors extending from a central entrance. Patients were separated by sex, males in the North Wing and females in the South. There were 12 wards of patients assigned to various wards according to their diagnosis and violence levels. Young children diagnosed as mentally deficient and elderly dementia patients were often housed together in the same ward, end quote. 
They were enclosed verandas so patients could enjoy the outdoors while remaining securely within the hospital. In the typical Kirkbride style, the most violent patients were housed in the far ends of both wings, opposite the central administration area and far from the superintendent's private residence. On October 22, 1883, the first male patient was transferred from Portland to the Oregon State Insane Asylum. The following morning, 263 men arrived by train and were admitted. According to records from that time, 10 of the initial patients were identified as Chinese and the rest were identified as Caucasian. Among them, 75 were laborers, 40 were farmers, five were merchants, two were physicians, one was a teacher, and one was a lawyer. The primary cause of insanity for men was masturbation. And not to belabor this point too much, but some of these men were diagnosed with spermatorrhea or exact, ex, excuse me, excessive ejaculation, and others were diagnosed with what was called onanism, which referred to sex without the purpose of procreation and is based on the biblical story of onan. Head injuries, heredity, infections, epilepsy, and alcohol accounted for the remainder of the causes of admission. The men were diagnosed as follows, 72 with mania, 70 with chronic mania, 33 with dementia, 20 with epilepsy, 19 with melancholy, 9 idiots, 7 imbeciles, 1 feeble-minded. On October 24th, 1883, two days after the asylum opened, 102 women and two men were transferred from the Hawthorne Asylum to Salem. Of the 104 new patients, 49 were listed as housewives, seven as domestic servants, one hotel keeper, one teacher, one dressmaker, and one sex worker. 41 were listed simply as unknown. At this point, only days after the new asylum opened, there were a total of 368 patients. Remember that Dr. Kirkbride had only intended for hospitals designed in the Kirkbride style to house a maximum of 250 patients. Unlike the men, whose primary cause of insanity was masturbation, the most common cause of insanity in women was listed as unknown. Other causes listed were heredity, emotional issues, sexual issues, alcohol, overwork, and old age. The women were diagnosed upon admission with the following. 36 with chronic mania, 24 with melancholy, 13 with dementia, 9 with idiocy, 4 with acute mania, 6 with epilepsy, 9 is unknown, and 1 with paresis, which was a partial paralysis, often secondary to cephalus. So you'll notice at this point that disorders that we now know as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and bipolar disorder are not yet listed. Um, at this point, psychiatry as a field was still in its infancy. In fact, the first use of the term psychiatry was in 1808 by a German physician. Psychiatry only became an established and accepted branch of medicine around the mid to late 19th century, and psychology followed suit. And contrary to popular belief, Sigmund Freud was not the father of psychology, but rather Wilhelm Wundt, who published his famous book, Principles of Physiological Psychology, in 1873 and started the first psychology laboratory in 1879. Uh, just for reference, Freud didn't set up the Psychoanalytic Society until 1902. Now, to their credit, early psychiatrists and institutions like the Oregon State Insane Asylum 
sought out ways to make treatment for the mentally ill humane and therapeutic. By 1887, the hospital acquired more land, increasing from the original 107 acres to 285 acres. The high fence around the asylum was removed and a picket fence put in its place to make it feel less like a prison and more bucolic. Two major changes for the asylum came in 1890. First was the addition of electric lighting to reduce the risk of fires. Up to that point, the hospital had relied on gas lighting and the asylum was known as a death trap. The second major change was the building of the cottage farm. Based upon plans that originated in Europe, the cottages were intended to help the men and women housed there to participate in outdoor work, which they hoped would promote quality sleep and reduce the need for medications. Approximately 270 patients resided at the cottages and worked at the farm and dairy. They were instrumental in providing the majority of the food and worked, uh, excuse me, in providing the majority of the food for the residents and employees of the asylum. This not only proved to be a therapeutic venture, but a cost-saving one too. The farm remained an important element of the asylum until its eventual closure in 1964 due to advancements in psychiatric medicines that left fewer patients able to work. By 1891, there were 478 male patients and 212 female patients housed at the new asylum. A new superintendent, Dr. Levi L. Rowland, was appointed in July 1891. He issued a report of the asylum conditions, calling it, quote, unsanitary, full of bedbugs, lacking adequate fire defense equipment, lacking adequate attendance, lacking bath towels, and needing 75 bedsteads for patients who were sleeping on the floor, end quote. The report was released to a horrified public. In an attempt to defend himself, the previous superintendent said the bedbugs had come from the old asylum, and try as they might, nothing could seem to get rid of them. The number of patients at the asylum continued to grow, meaning that administration had to work to keep the cost of housing the patients as low as possible. By the end of 1895, only 12 years after the asylum opened, the population had soared to 1,024 patients, 711 men, and 313 women. To this point, the hospital had primarily been accessible by train, but by 1895, a streetcar system was finally implemented so visitors and employees could access the hospital more easily. It became known as Center Street, as it is still known today. Dr. Rowland served as the superintendent for four years and then resigned in 1895. His successor, Dr. D.A. Payne, began a campaign of releasing so-called inmates who he believed were living at the hospital unnecessarily. In a statement that may have been common for the day, but shocking today at its heartlessness, Dr. Payne said, quote, notice should be given that paupers, seniles, inebriates, and effeminates that are clearly not insane, but victims of appetite and mere old age shall not be unloaded on the state asylum for the insane as though it were a poor house, end quote. He was known as an efficient administrator and kept the cost of each patient to $9.32 per month, the lowest cost ever attained during the history of the hospital. Yet, despite his efforts, the population steadily increased and soon the demand for new buildings arose. 
The infirmary was built to house tuberculosis patients and others with highly communicable diseases. More wards were built to house the growing number of patients. Dr. John Calbreth was appointed superintendent in 1900 and served until 1907. He declared the primary problem at the hospital was the horrifying abuse of patients. As Gores Gardner points out, quote, because the patients were delusional, no one believed them. And any nurse or attendant who actually reported abuse was harassed by other staff until they quit. One attendant was able to smother patients with a wet towel without leaving any marks or bruising and yet still provide a very painful and dangerous punishment. Dr. Calbreth no longer followed the previous see nothing, hear nothing, say nothing rule. Instead, he reported all accidents to the press and instructed the coroner to actually investigate all cases of death. He instituted a new rule that anyone abusing a patient would be immediately fired. End quote. So in essence, Dr. Calbreth wanted employees to recognize that they were working with the mentally ill patients and to treat them with care. For a while, at least, decency returned to the hospital. By 1908, a new institution was built in Salem called the State Institution for the Feeble-Minded, later called Fairview Hospital, which is how I'll refer to it. It served individuals with developmental and intellectual disabilities, although at the time they were still called idiots, imbeciles, and morons. A number of patients from the insane asylum were transferred to this new facility. Fairview Hospital would go on to be at the center of a number of patient atrocities and would be remain open until 2000. But... That, my friends, is a sad story for another day. Dr. R. E. Lee Steiner became superintendent of the asylum on January 1st, 1908, and would go on to serve for 29 years. By October 1908, 1,558 patients resided at the hospital. A new wing was completed to house the criminally insane, and the asylum had purchased its own moving picture machine allowing both patients and employees a chance to watch new films. But by 1911, hospital overcrowding became a significant concern. Those who were financially able to were asked to pay $10 per month. Any out-of-state patients were returned to their home states. Most significantly, the hospital began to refuse admission to certain patients, to the elderly with dementia, to morphine addicts, alcoholics, and anyone who had relatives capable of taking care of them. By 1912, overcrowding forced patients to sleep in corridors and smoking rooms. To help reduce the issue, a new building was constructed. Initially called the Treatment and Psychopathic Hospital, it became known, as it still is today, as the Dome Building. It was used as a receiving hospital for the asylum and as a medical hospital for women. It had its own x-ray coil and a modern hydrotherapeutic apparatus. More notably, it was one of the most advanced surgery facilities at the time. More on that in a moment. In 1913, Dr. Steiner began incorporating psychoanalytic practices into the treatment of the insane, focusing on just that, their treatment, instead of merely housing the mentally ill. He recommended that the asylum be renamed from Oregon State Insane Asylum to Oregon State Hospital, and it was accepted. Throughout the early years of the 20th century, concern was growing among the public and physicians regarding how to improve upon humanity. 
How could they, moving forward, work toward creating better marriages, better families, better lineage? A pioneer of this moment, movement, Mrs. Loren Helen Mackenzie Baker, was featured in an article by the Oregonian in 1912. She advocated for smaller and more perfect families. She believed medical examinations should be required for people applying for marriage certificates. And as an added economic and humanitarian measure, she believed certain kinds of marriages should be prevented entirely. Those of insane persons, imbeciles, naturally deformed persons, club-footed persons, persons infected with certain systematic diseases, and criminals. Another woman at the helm of this movement was Dr. Bethenia Owens Adair. She went one step further, not only stating that certain types of marriages should be prohibited, but that, quote, I personally believe that every person, male or female, who is a potential parent and has been committed to a state institution as insane, epileptic, feeble-minded, idiotic, or for criminality, should be sterilized, at least by vasectomy or salpingectomy, end quote. So, by 1917, the eugenics movement had permeated the culture. Baby contests were being held around the state in search for Oregon's most perfect babies. Scientists of the time proposed that problems like insanity, feeble-mindedness, and criminality were inherited traits as easily passed down as eye color or hair color. And so on May 21st, 1917, the Oregon Board of Eugenics was passed into law. Supervisors of the State Board of Health, Oregon State Hospital, Eastern Oregon State Hospital, the penitentiary, and the Institution for the Feeble-Minded composed the board. Dr. Steiner, the superintendent of Oregon State Hospital, supported the science of eugenics. The dome building, which was already set up to be a state-of-the-art surgical center, began sterilizing patients. At first, only individuals labeled as sexual deviants were sterilized. Of course, these are not people we might consider sexual deviants today. Instead, they included sex workers, same-sex partners, and people having sex outside marriage. Between 1917 and 1921, 125 men and women were sterilized in the dome building at Oregon State Hospital. In a too little, too late effort, the Oregon Supreme Court ruled in 1921 that the 1917 law was unconstitutional because it denied due process. Not to be outdone, eugenics advocates recommended that the law be revised to emphasize the therapeutic benefits of the procedure, not the punitive nature. And so by 1923, the revised law was passed. By 1925, it was amended to include anyone convicted of sexual crimes as a candidate for sterilization. By the end of 1925, 313 sterilizations had been performed in institutions around Oregon. By 1940, 1,450 sterilizations were performed throughout Oregon. It wasn't until 1948 that the Board of Eugenics required a guardian relative or close friend to sign permission for the sterilization procedures to be completed. So think about this. For over 30 years, people unable to give their consent, people unable to read, write, understand the procedure, um, were unable to give their consent to the procedure and were forced to undergo it. 
as a quick side note, it was the U.S. eugenics law that essentially inspired Nazi Germany to adopt it for its own sterilization pro program, not the other way around. Too many of us look at the horrifying medical experiments that came out of the Holocaust and think, how could this have happened when hospitals around the U.S. had already been doing the same for decades? The total number of people sterilized in Oregon during this time period is unknown, but estimates vary between 2,341 to 2,648 people from 1917 until the last sterilization in 1978. As Gors Gardner points out, of those, approximately 65% were women and 35% were men. Only one-third were diagnosed as mentally ill. Some were under age 18. At least one woman died as a result of a forced hysterectomy. Finally, then-Senator John Kitzhaber pushed the legislature to end the movement, and the Board of Eugenics was finally abolished in 1983, after 66 years. Of course, sterilization wasn't the only horrific and inhumane procedure to take place at Oregon State Hospital. By the 1940s, lobotomies were being used around the country to control the most severe cases of aggression and psychosis. I hope to go into more detail about lobotomies in a future episode, but for now, let me briefly describe the two primary types of lobotomy surgeries that were performed at Oregon State Hospital. The transorbital lobotomy is what I think most people picture when they think of a lobotomy. It involves a small metal instrument, usually described as an ice pick, that is inserted into the tear duct of the eye and is essentially used to fish around and cut off parts of the prefrontal cortex with the hope that it will create a more cooperative and docile patient. The preorbital lobotomy involves drilling two holes into the skull above the eyes and near the hairline. From there, it involves the same procedure as the transorbital orbital lobotomy and involves an instrument with a little loop on the end that severs the nerves by taking out portions of brain tissue. Both forms of lobotomies are absolutely barbaric and frequently had more negative consequences than positive ones. More on that in a moment. In June 1947, the first lobotomy in Oregon took place not in Salem, but in Portland on a woman who was a patient at Oregon State Hospital. The second lobotomy was performed the same day on a woman who was a patient at Fairview Hospital. Records indicate that by October 1947, three more patients had been approved for the procedure. So in total, between 1947 and 1948, 13 transorbital lobotomies, so the ice pick through the tear duct, were performed at Oregon State Hospital. Between 1949 and 1950, 43 preorbital lobotomies, the drill through the skull kind, and 17 transorbital lobotomies were performed. This was the height of the lobotomy craze, if you will, at Oregon State Hospital, and there was a decline afterward, fortunately. Between 1951 and 1952, 31 preorbital lobotomies and seven transorbital lobotomies were performed. And the last recorded years, 1953 to 1954, 17 preorbital lobotomies and only one transorbital lobotomy was performed. In total, between 1947 and 1954, 135 brain surgeries, including lobotomies and other procedures, were performed in the dome building at Oregon State Hospital. 
Of those 135 surgeries, the ages of patients ranged from 13 years old to 49 years old. Most had schizophrenia or other psychotic diagnoses. Almost all were described as violent and assaultive and were frequently in restraints, although a few had symptoms of chronic depression. A 1950 report on 58 lobotomies that took place at Oregon State Hospital between November 1st, 1947 and April 10th, 1950, found that only one patient who had undergone surgery was fully discharged. 15 had been conditionally paroled and two at the time of the report were being considered for parole. Two had improved enough in order to work on the yard crew. 14 were considered easier to manage on the wards. 11 showed no improvement at all, and two had died after the procedure. Gores Gardner notes that, quote, the Oregon Psychosurgery Review Board was created in 1973 to approve or decline suggested surgeries. Between 1973 and 1981, physicians sought approval for six lobotomies, and the, the board approved only one, which was performed outside the hospital. The operation was a failure, and in 1981, the surgery was banned in Oregon, end quote. It's hard to listen to the history of mental health treatment, and Oregon State Hospital was certainly not the only institution using these inhumane pra practices at the time, as I'll discuss in future episodes. I'm reminded of this quote by Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. We'll start to see evidence of that as we move forward in the history of the hospital. So I'm gonna pause on this happy little note and finish the history of Oregon State Hospital in the next episode, where we'll discuss the most popular superintendent in the history of hospital, the hospital's role in a multiple Oscar award-winning film, and the effects of deinstitutionalization. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back. Each episode, I'm certain, is going to get better and better as I continue to learn more and uh, figure out how this whole editing thing works. <laughs> so until then, remember, uh, when you know better, do better. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Cover image is by Christopher Payne. Check out my website at behindthewallspodcast.buzzsprout.com. Follow the podcast and learn more on Facebook at Behind the Walls Podcast and Instagram at Behind the Walls Pod. For questions or recommendations, email me at behindthewallspodcast at gmail.com. You can find new episodes every Monday on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find and listen to the show, and I would be so grateful. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Until next time.